You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I am Aaron Lammer. I'm here with my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Aaron Lammer, how are you? Hey, Aaron. I like your I like your greeting voice. I always like to hear your greeting voice. It's a different voice that I don't do during the interviews. I only do it at the very beginning of intros. Uh, I'm I'm jazzed up. I'm riled up because uh, the conversation I had is with a person who can really bring the energy, like over and over again in a podcast, which I, I don't think is easy. I don't think people realize um, what it's like to uh, to be a volume shooter in the podcast game. Uh, my guest is Chris Ryan of uh, The Ringer, previously of Grantland, uh, the host of The Watch podcast uh, with uh, Andy Greenwald, who's been on the show, and uh, frequent host of The Rewatchables and other podcasts um, on The Ringer. I didn't know this going in. His father was a movie critic. Um, What he's doing feels in between like old school criticism and like hanging out with your friends and talking about something that you all watched. Um, and I'm interested in, in how you cultivate that quality, um, how you make people feel that way. Like, I feel like I know him. This is the first time we have like ever had talked and generally like what it's like spending many, many hours a week watching things on a screen and then talking about them with your coworkers, um, which is a great uh, privilege and a fantasy probably for many, but I think a pretty uh, grueling uh, lifestyle and practice. I'm so excited for this. It's like a, uh, it, it, for me personally, it's like a crossover episode, you know, it's yeah. like uh, two of my favorite podcast hosts talking to each other. Can't wait. This is within my uh, special fandom series in which I slightly embarrass <laughs> myself by telling someone uh, how much I've thought about them while they have not thought about me at all. <laughs> Uh, We're brought to you in partnership with Vox Media. They help us make the show. Thanks to everyone over at Vox. And now here's Aaron with Chris Ryan. Welcome to the program, Chris Ryan. Thanks so much for having me, man. I'm worried that I'm going to be overly familiar with you, even though we've never met, because I've heard you talk for like... At least 100 hours, possibly 500 oh hours. <laughs> uh, you are the host of The Watch with Andy Greenwald. Check out his long-form podcast. Uh, you also appear on uh, Rewatchables quite a bit and yeah. have done lots of stuff in the uh, Grantland, The Ringer extended uh, universe. You've been in my life for like going on 10 years now. Is that right? Since the start of Grantland? Uh, yeah, Grantland, I joined in 2011. I think Andy and I started podcasting in 2012, if I remember correctly. So it's been a little bit more than 10 years. You've been with me like as long as my cats. 
<laughs> I hope I have their longevity. That's great. Um, but the thing is, I actually don't know how you like got into this stuff. Yeah. Um, well, how far back do you want to go? Childhood. Okay. <laughs> um, I'll try and be succinct. I'm from Philadelphia. Um, I I grew up like right by the art museum. My dad was the movie critic for the Philadelphia Inquirer, uh, and my mom was a teacher at the school I attended. Um, I was an aimless student. Like, I think I was good at certain things, but I was really, really bad at like concentrating and and finishing assignments and staying on top of things. You know, I was aware that my dad wrote about movies multiple times per week and went to screenings and stuff like that. So there was like a kind of semi-awareness of like this being an industry and a business and something people did for their jobs. I don't know what I thought I was going to be. I mean, I kind of hoped I would be a writer, but it, it it was more that like I liked movies, I liked journalism, but I I it was it wasn't like I wanted to be my dad. I guess is if we're if we're having like the Freudian conversation, it wasn't it wasn't ever like oh I want to fulfill step into his legacy. It was just like he happened to work in an industry or in a in a world that I was interested in, and that I I but it was like I honestly probably didn't have anything to do with movies for until I was like in my 30s when I started working at Grantland and we started writing more about that stuff. For the most part, like music was pretty much the dominant thing in my life up until, uh, honestly, up until Grantland where I was writing about music for a variety of places where like I moved to New York from Boston after school. I was working a little bit at Spin. I worked at Fader. I was writing for The Voice. I was I was kind of kicking around like the music criticism ecosystem, I guess. But I, it was not really like it was hard. It was like I thought it was a I was like a decent music critic, but I never really figured out like how to make it into a career. And I was also like a young idiot, so like I wasn't really sure how to do that anyway with any any kind of job. Worked some retail here and there and worked like advertising, copywriting jobs here and there. But for the most part, was writing. And then also on the side from the music criticism stuff, it started writing on blogs, like Blogspot blogs that I was just doing for my own entertainment at the back of uh, Mondo Kim's, which is a record store in New York City. I would I would just blog about basketball uh, for a blog that I started called chaunceybillips.blogspot.com. And Wait a then minute. I started... Were you part of the, like, the original like Free Darko world? Yeah, you know, those guys, were, we were all like contemporaries. I think I read your blog. <laughs> yeah, that was me. These are the kind of things that are going to like wake me up when I have dementia. <laughs> yeah, so I was uh, writing Chauncey Billups. And then um, I guess after that, I had been doing that for a little while. And then I wrote like another blog called Gabe Said We're Into Movements, which was about Jay-Z. So I was just kind of like writing a lot for myself. And in the process of doing that, had started like trying to catch on doing some sports blogging and, and writing about basketball, but writing also about soccer. And I was kind of doing a little bit of that around a World Cup. I think that was the... It's 2010, I, I think. And when I would write blog posts like back then, I, I I literally was doing it for my own entertainment and the entertainment of like the six friends I knew who would look at it. And I had no expectation that anyone else would read it. And in in terms of like readership, it was like minuscule. But I think it was practice, you know? And it was also finding out what it is I found interesting about music or what it is I found interesting about sports and 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 you kind of drill down on like what kind of basketball player do you like watching? What do you respect? What do you disrespect about certain basketball players? Like what what characteristics do a team have that you like that you don't like? Maybe it's just that you don't like them because they're 
Chicago, who, you know, but like right about that. And I think as you sort of get more and more reps in that regard, and especially more and more reps where it's just like you kind of like have to live and die with what you publish, it's very helpful in like helping you find the voice that you have. I mean, everybody's got a perspective, but it's like the, the, the defining of that voice is really like, it takes time and it, and it takes experience. And that's how basically I started breaking into writing about sports. And when Bill was starting Grantland, he, he was w- relying a lot on Chuck Klosterman's kind of network of people that he knew in New York City who were, who were writers. And I met Bill through Chuck at a 30 for 30 party in New York City. And things kind of went from there. And, and then after about a year of writing for Grantland, it was, I was offered the chance to move out there to LA to also edit. And that's kind of, kind of where my Grantland story starts. Some of the kinds of tone that I sort of see in your work kind of didn't exist till you were like in your 30s. Yeah. Like, yeah. That was that was the Grantland thing. Yeah. I mean, for me, I I had this weird experience with like Grantland and, and later um The Ringer where I, I started listening to Bill's show. And at the time I was like a casual sports fan. And then I became a regular listener. And at a certain point my experience of the NFL was more through listening to him guess lines yeah. than watching the NFL. And I would say that's probably true of my experience with prestige TV <laughs> and the watch. Also, like I have takes of shows that I haven't even seen before because I've heard you guys talk about them. And I, I, I've talked on the show before about that as sort of the hangout culture yeah. that is kind of a new form of media where it's not criticism. It's more like watching something with someone, but it's often things that you haven't actually watched. I was just having uh, drinks the other night with somebody who made the joke because I was talking about the phenomenon of people listening to up- upwards of eight to 10 hours of NBA podcasts in a week, but not watching any games. Yeah. And, uh, about how like the most prescient thing that's ever been said is maybe in the movie Metropolitan where the guy is like, I like reading literary criticism because that way I get a summary of the plot and an opinion. And <laughs> it's it's a joke about like Jane Austen in Metropolitan, this movie from, from the 90s. But it actually applies pretty well to like the way that podcasts work now where you can sort of have the simulation of an experience of being a sports fan without actually having to ever watch basketball or in your case, watch for all mankind or whatever it is that you're avoiding. I mean, like I'll I'll pretty much I've experienced the whole rise and fall of Marvel from like a 1000 foot distance. Just people (laughs) like talking about it. I'm like, I wish I had experienced it from that distance. (laughs) (laughs) So um, like, what were the early shows like? Like, what was it like when you didn't sort of know what kind of a show you wanted to make? Yeah, well, I remember the first show Andy and I ever did together because it was at it wasn't, it may have been like the Brill building. Like it was a classic ESPN sort of situation where these two idiots who are going to do a podcast about television that may or may not ever run. So we should rent them a studio in like a really awesome midtown Manhattan recording studio. So I remember like Andy and I sitting on stools opposite one another as if we were having some sort of like sound bath therapy. And we just talked about Down Abbey, um, which was just like a, the show that was sort of, 
percolating at the time. Like I remember that was just as it was kind of coming over from England and was on in the States and people were starting to watch it a lot. It was like that first season when Dan Stevens was still on and stuff like that. I remember talking about a lot about Homeland early on. I remember there was always a show on on Sunday night. So Andy and I would just talk about whatever was kind of on on Mondays, if I remember correctly. And then for a while we were doing it remotely like where we would he would be in New York and I would be in LA and we would do the podcast but we we would just sort of follow the lead of whatever HBO or Showtime had on the air or AMC had on the air at the time as like a person talking about your own taste like w- what was difficult early on about like expressing like what you thought about this stuff because it's not a show and never has been a show that's primarily like thumbs up thumbs down like man jumping out of the chair it's something different i think that what we always did maybe not even intentionally so when we started i was like a sports blogger sports editor at Graylin, and andy i believe had become like the tv critic so it was kind of the idea was like andy's a tv critic and here's his like straight shooting friend chris who's just gonna <laughs> like set him up ask him what he thinks about stuff but i think what we realized was that the show was really about our relationship and was about the way in which we saw pieces of culture in different and same ways. So it became a little bit more about us processing things rather than like us evaluating something and being like, we recommend this to our listeners that they spend some time with Carrie on Homeland. You know, it was like we would talk about Homeland and the relationship between that show and maybe other spy shows or spy fiction that we liked. Or we would talk about some of the, you know, crazy plot twists that would happen on that show and whether or not they were particularly realistic. But they it wasn't it wasn't like a um a recommendation engine per se. Although I think I, I hope people do find shows that they like by listening to our show. Do you think that it's easier to get into that kind of like a pod hangout with rhythm with someone who is your in real like you've done this with andy who is a real pre-existing friend of yours and then i I assume you've also been sort of thrust into the situation with a lot of strangers Mm -hmm. like what's the difference and like what would you recommend in terms of like developing a podcast chemistry with another human being i get asked this a lot i i don't really know because i just got lucky that i have like ipod with the with people I've known for a very long time. I've I've known Andy since the summer after freshman year of college, so mid-90s. I mean, now I've known Bill for, for almost 13 years or something like that. So 12, 13 years. So it's like, I, I am not the right person to ask that. Like, how do you develop chemistry with somebody? I mean, hang out in bars with them for a really long time before you start a podcast, I guess is my recommendation. <laughs> the period you described where you were starting the show, there was like, three like hyped tv shows going on at once and we were like whoa enough guys like slow down here and now it feels like you are covering just like an endless landscape how many hours a week are you watching a screen right now uh obscene an obscene amount to you know like i think that between watching movies for rewatchables, watching TV for the watch, watching games just to be aware of like what's going on for our sports coverage and stuff like, you know, on average, probably four hours a day. I would, I would imagine like if you, if you added it all up cumulatively, but the, the, the bigger pressure now. So there used to be like a feeling of kind of like, 
on a Wednesday, say Lost was on, or on Thursday, Friday Night Lights might be on, and then on a Sunday, uh, one of the HBO like sort of prestige dramas would be on. So let's just say that was like your week yeah. uh, of watching TV. Generally speaking, like when we first started out, like I personally wasn't sort of of any note. Like I wasn't getting screeners. So like what we would do is just watch those shows with everybody else when they were gone. I mean, I think Andy would get screeners for stuff, but for the most part, we weren't really like the idea that you could watch like the entire season of True Detective before it came out. Like that was not the case, you know. Um, and I had to wait till that torrent hit. Yeah, exactly. that, that, sweet, that sweet first cedar would light up. You had to get to the pirate bay for that. Um, <laughs> but there was something kind of uh, I don't know, a little bit more communal about it because that's what most people were doing. Like they would go to their desk job or whatever they were doing all day. They would come back from school. And then they would make a little bit of dinner. And then that night, there would be like an hour of good TV to watch. And then the next day or a couple of days later, me and Andy would make a podcast about it. And I think what we started to see, which is also what we saw with sports coverage, was a desire for that stuff to happen way closer to the event. So like if you're doing, you know, you've got Game of Thrones going, people want to hear about Game of Thrones like the second Game of Thrones is over. Um, so whether you're doing it live or you've pre-recorded it, they they just want stuff to have as soon as they can. And added to that situation was the streaming revolution where people are just putting shows up in their entirety on a Friday or they are putting up the first two or three hours of something on a Thursday before the next seven weeks of, of releases. Things are going up constantly. We now have like seven to eight to nine streaming services, all of which have at least like one or two things that are, are worth checking out. And... I think it's a lot more chaotic and a lot harder to sort of um, to find the good stuff. And it's also, I think, making everybody feel a little overwhelmed and removing the uh, the element of, hey, we're all doing this together. It's like, oh, yeah, I watched four episodes of that on Friday when it got released, but then I forgot about it and I didn't watch it for two weeks. Or I binged it and I'm done and I'm waiting for things that explain the ending. Or, you know, I'm going to wait until it all comes out, but nobody is watching anything at the same time. So it's definitely changed the way that we talk about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I describe this as the, like, hanging out era, and it's, like, cool hanging out as a listener, but it sounds like trying to, like, tape these things, like, 30 seconds after they happen, it, it, it's put, like, a weird, like, there's a weird kind of, like, pressure to all of it. Yeah, I mean, it's, you almost have to lean into it being chaotic. Like, when we do True Detective podcasts, say, you know, like, about about this new season, Andy and I are like, I don't think operating under the assumption that we will have like found every single Easter egg, noticed every single nuance. And we're, we're, we understand that we're like first responders. It's a choice to do it that way. Whereas like Joanna and Rob's podcast that they're doing about True Detective for our prestige TV feed is like much more of a deep dive. It's like an hour and a half long. I think that Joe is in, like one of the most like keenly observant television watchers I've ever met. So it's like you, you can kind of do it one of two ways. I've done it both ways. I, I think like I, I don't mind doing it live, but it is definitely difficult. I have some sort of nuts and bolts questions here about that, and I apologize if you've already answered these elsewhere. But like, do you take notes while you're watching? Yeah, like, I do. I do, uh, but not like I take like notes like that are like some thoughts. So like generally speaking, especially with like Andy, I would say that we have like the broadest of outlines, and I'll have some prompts or something like that. But for the most part, we haven't decided what we're going to talk about before we start talking about it. Like, we'll say, well, we're going to do True Detective today and we're going to talk about X, Y, and Z. But we haven't really 
teased out like every single part of the podcast. There's, I think, a little bit more of like a, you know, throw it at the wall and see what sticks to it. Like we, we tend to operate a little bit without a net. When we conceived of this show, Max and I have talked about like um, kind of like three acts for the interview. And I always try to do that as like on the notes. And then I'm like, this is just three headings <laughs> with random stuff for under them. There's not exactly rising and falling action to this. There's yeah. absolutely no thematic links. Yeah. <laughs> like right in front of me, it just says hanging out, <laughs> header, and then editorial director header. Those aren't acts. Um so you're taking these notes like I've talked to like like war journalists who talk about like I think in like phrases like a sentence that will be in my story comes to me in the moment. Are you thinking in like the way you talk or are you thinking in the way that you like process the art and then like later you just kind of improvise what you're saying about it? Like, That's a really awesome question. I cuz like I I think that I my note taking is a lot more, I, I think, boring than what it, the way it actually comes out. Like some of it is just like this this play person, this character yeah. is this character's name, and it's played by this actor who's been in this. Like some of it is just to like refresh my memory. You know, it's I I am a classic forty six year old man who's like I can remember the starting five for like a nineteen eighty eight Syracuse basketball team, but can't remember who's in True Detective this season. But like, so I have to like refresh my memory about stuff like that, and then I also will just sort of basically put like the outline of the take that I'm going to have. But I find that the more that I kind of feel like I'm reading or dictating to myself what I'm going to say in the studio, that like then the performance of the thought doesn't match with like it doesn't match in my head what I thought I, it was supposed to sound like. So I try to just give myself hints and not give myself a script. Like I, I leave a lot to happen when we're in the studio. Um, there are times when I walk out of a studio and I'll be like, I, I kind of biffed that or, you know, like that could have been better or like I, the, it didn't flow as well as I wanted it to. But for the most part, I've kind of arrived at this place where I kind of am a volume shooter. So I I do three or four podcasts a week and I kind of think of it more as like a, a baseball season and you're going to have a lot of at bats and you hope to get on base more than you don't, you know? And, and so it's not really, I, I, I'm in some ways have like avoided ever having like everything is resting on whether or not this podcast goes well. And I think that I've learned that over the course of my life, like it's, I mean, it's funny to be on the long form podcast. I think I'm very, I'm a very short form guy. Like I, <laughs> I've always been more comfortable blogging than I have been writing profiles or writing features. I've always been more comfortable doing like day-to-day -day podcasting than scripted narrative podcasting or doing like deeply researched reported stuff. It's it's just where I'm I'm more I feel more at my like myself when I'm doing stuff like that. So I do I do feel pretty critical of, of my own work. I do recognize when like, I wish I would have done something differently or I wish I would have like listened more or set somebody up better or been more clear on something I was trying to, a point I was trying to make. But I kind of am like, if I, if I carry that around too much, it'll affect the next show and I try not to let that happen. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. 
you can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. You're the editorial director of um, The Ringer, so I assume that you're also like... Um, like coaching the like young upstarts, the the new prospects from from the farm team. Like, what do you do? I think I yeah. So I mean, I think that we have like a pretty unique setup where you know a, a bunch of us have been working for Bill for a very long time, uh, and we all have like different roles, and our roles have evolved since Grantland and since the beginning of the Ringer, and since we went to Spotify, and even over the course of those last couple of years. At this point, if I'm being honest, like I. I do spend a lot of my time podcasting, but editorial directing is essentially like helping people see their ideas come to fruition. And like, it's, it's essentially like trying to coach people and tell people about like what it means to make a ringer piece of content, whether it's like a piece of writing or a video or a podcast. And the best way for me to do that is just to try it and work hands-on with people on the things that they're working on. When someone comes up to you and is like, Hey, that was, you know, I taped a test for the show or, you know, whatever, like, like, how do you, like, do you give like editorial feedback about other people's podcasting? Does that exist? Yeah, sometimes. I mean, sometimes it's helpful if they have a very specific question about something that they're doing or maybe a hang up about something that they're doing. And they're like, I can't figure out like a way to get this better. Yeah. Um, I try, you know, I think I try to make people feel like they're being themselves on podcasts because I think that that's what listeners respond to. So I try to say like, here's what I think I like about you. Maybe try to put this forward a little bit more. I think I'm probably more like, hey, like I can tell you're holding the wheel tight here. So loosen up or maybe try and like contextualize or frame this question in a different way so that you're not just kind of setting this person up so that you can talk. Like try and let the conversation happen, which is, you know, the, the hardest part about doing pods is that like you basically come in there and you're, you've both got your maybe preconceived notions about what you want to say about any subject. And then all of a sudden you realize you're just taking turns talking at each other. Do people get better or do people kind of just like have it or not? Have oh, people it? definitely get better. Okay. I, I think so. I think people get more comfortable. I also think that people start to, you know, inevitably, like if, if your pod is heard and, and if people respond to it, you start to get feedback about what people like and don't like, and you could choose to ignore it or take that on. I mean, I think that can be kind of crippling in some ways where you're just like, no, man, like nobody likes my laugh. I have to not laugh. You know, like you, you can't listen to everything that you see online. But I think if people show enthusiasm for a certain kind of commentary that you may have or a certain kind of like characteristic that you possess, like it's okay to like give them that, you know, um, it, it's, I don't know if everybody would, if I all of a sudden decided like I was just going to be super serious <laughs> on every podcast for the rest of the year, I don't know how many... <laughs> listeners I would have, you know, after that. 
that kind of puts you in a role that I don't know. It's sort of like the like player coach role um, on a basketball team where you're like both like trying to help people, but also you're like, you're like in the thing that you're trying to help them with. And you've also been in the opposite of that role in that, like you appear on Bill Simmons's podcast. That's probably how I first heard about you as I probably heard you on Bill's show. So like, what's that like? What's like doing like live improvised content with people who are your boss or like work under you? Like, I don't really think about it with Bill in terms of the boss employer relationship anymore, just because I mostly do rewatchables with him. And in rewatchables, I feel like we, I have a very clear role on rewatchables. Like he says Wing Jenkins and then he stares at me until I do the voice. It's like, I understand exactly what I'm there for. Um, But when you're with like a, like a, like a junior, you know, a newer person who's doing some new show and you come on, like, I guess I'm just like, it it seems like almost like a, like a very like high wire act to have these. Yeah. I just try to make people feel at ease. Like I, if I can, you know what I mean? Like I, we have a Philadelphia sports, like a local show called the Philly special that I, that I appear on because I'm from Philadelphia and care about those things. And I did that show yesterday and I was doing it with Shil Kapadia, who's a writer that I've long, long admired, uh, who's covered the Eagles and covered the NFL. And we talked a little bit about Joel Embiid, but then we did some NFL stuff. And I just, I was happy to be there, honestly. Like if I'm appearing on somebody's show, I'm, I'm, it's a pleasure to do it with, with whoever's hosting it. And I just try to bring the best energy I can and try to help them make whatever show they want to make. And, and if it's an informational thing, like I try to make sure the information is coming across clear. And if it's more of a hangout, like let's have fun thing, I try to do that. But I try not to ever make people feel like they're, they're, they're being graded by me while I'm doing a show with them. And they're not really. I mean, it's really a cumulative thing. It's not like, oh, this person screwed up Wednesday's show, so they're on probation with their podcast. Like, we're going to take the mic away or something. The Watch covers Hollywood as an industry. You know, what are the new shows coming out? You know, what are the sort of trends? What are the, like, grand narrative arcs? And, like, I personally feel like with each progressive year, I lose the thread more and more on that. Um you know, even compared to uh, newspaper, like movie reviewing, it was like the weekly box office came out and someone was number one. And now it all feels like this kind of weird, like the numbers are fake and like no one really knows what's going on. What's your like temperature on the industry now? Like, what, how, how do you deal with the fact that it's kind of like harder to say anything concrete about what's going on? I think that just because it's opaque and frustrating and also seems like a scam (laughs) doesn't make it any less interesting to talk about. And if anything, I think what makes me energized to talk about the television industry or the larger, you know, pop culture, like content industry is that it resembles so many other ways of doing business and the ways of, 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 of American kind of like consumer relationships to the things that that people are passionate about, like the consumerification of something that you're passionate about. So like, if you're just like, I like watching TV and TV got really good in my adulthood. Those are, those are two things. Like I, I'm not necessarily somebody who was like mash and cheers and like these real cultural touchstones mean a lot to me. It was really more 
like Lost and Sopranos and Wire on that I became more of like a pretty big TV head, which I think is a pretty common phenomenon. I don't necessarily pretend to understand what Netflix's debt position is, but I do think it's really interesting to see how they make moves in the television business. And sometimes I think you can learn a lot about what people actually are watching based on watching Netflix, for instance. Um, so it's so my, weird though, because your Netflix is different than other people's. Like if you're using the like the screen at all to see what it presents you, we're all having these like completely different Netflix experiences. Yes, but I think that Netflix is this sort of mirror, right? Like not only is it here's your taste, we're just shooting it back at you, but it's also like in those charts, it kind of cuts to cuts to the chase about like oh well maybe maybe people would really like this david fincher movie with michael fassbender and it's like well in fact they like you know this eight-year-old angelina jolie movie that netflix has acquired and is now like the number one movie on the service so you start to see a little bit more i think in a weird way you get to see like real taste on uh, uh, through that algorithm the, the rather than like oh i just i think everybody like everybody i know loves succession so succession must be huge and it's like it's huge among people who talk about television, but is it really that big? You know, like how big is a sh of a show is it? And does that matter? Like, does does the amount of people watching anything or listening to anything or going to see a certain movie like have any impact on how you feel about it? And that's a conversation that Andy and I have all the time. So um, this is probably going to date this podcast, whatever. This week, like Pitchfork got folded into GQ. I heard someone say, I thought this was kind of an interesting idea that like people were sad because sort of the peak of Pitchfork represented peak indie culture. But what if that wasn't the peak of indie culture, but sort of the peak of recorded music period that like the whole endeavor might be going away? And like, I've thought similar things about theatrical movies I think I was ready to become like an old head and not like the new stuff, but I hadn't really emotionally prepared myself for like a format to go away that was important to me. And by format, do you mean music reviews on Pitchfork or do you know? I mean like music, like, oh. like, or like it's uh, the music one's a little more um, nebulous, but like, there was definitely a point during the pandemic where I was like, do movies exist anymore? Yeah. I think Andy even asked this on the show like a couple weeks ago. He was like, what is a movie? Right. When we when we're not sure what it is, the format can't be very clear or strong. Yeah, I, I think you're you know, you, you, the reference you made to the pandemic is important because I think it made a lot of people kind of take a step back and be like, what's music like what yeah. what is tv if yeah is new tv important when i can watch all tv ever whenever i want you know i think that um you know you were asking whether or not andy and i like you know what are what my my temperature is on the industry i don't really think i care as much about the industry as i care as about how people are consuming things and so it's funny you should mention the Pitchfork thing. It's a publication I have a lot of respect for and some of my friends have written for and, and worked it there. And I think anytime something like this happens, it's just like really disappointing and sad and is not really in the best interest of readers. I was uh, flipping around on Instagram the other day and uh, came across like a reel where somebody was like, check this out. 
if you want to feel like a detective in a French 1970s crime movie. And it was a guy holding a record. And I was like, oh, that's actually like, I do want to feel that way. So I went to Spotify and I went to look this up. And I thought that this was like a relatively like obscure record and that this reel that I happened upon was like a one in a million chance that I had gotten this recommendation. And it turns out that the number one track that these guys had was like 36 million streams, which is like dwarfs <laughs> anything that I listened to. And it was because probably hundreds of millions of people have seen this Instagram video and have gone to check out this French detective music. And I was like, I guess, you know, if this is how people are finding music, it's not better or worse than if you had read a new, like a really well thought out 700 word review that gave it a number rating. But if the barrier of entry is like, I saw this on Instagram and listened to it on Spotify, like you just have to accept the fact that there's a completely different way of processing culture now, right? Like there's a different way of discovering it, of curating it. And I am still of the generation that used to go to reviews. I think we started going to reviews for the um, the functionality of them, which is, should I pay money for this record? Should I pay money to see this movie? Should I take the hour of my life to watch this TV show? But then when you started reading criticism, you realized that critics were giving you a way not only to think about art, but to think about the world. I'm devastated at the idea that that is not going to exist anymore or that that's going out of fashion. But I do think that that kind of discourse and that kind of way of thinking can exist in other places, whether it's on podcasts or this guy's Instagram reel where he was just like, do you want to feel like Alain Delon? Then go listen to this. Okay, so let's dig into that, though, because like I think a lot about like how taste changes over time. And generally, I think... Uh, people become more insular and more frozen in their taste over time. Um, for you, as someone who has to like go display your taste on short notice with no filter over and over again, like where's your taste at? How 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 has your taste changed over the 10, 12 years since you started at Grantland? Um, I think that I I respond to certain things in movies and television and literature where I feel like I'm having a very specific experience of a very specific view of the world. So I have a tendency to really like um, espionage fiction and crime fiction. A lot of the reasons why is because like, it's a very amplified, like uh, depiction of morality. People are having to make like these life or death decisions. They're having to decide, do I take the bag of money? Do I help the woman? Do I betray my country? All these things. And like, those kinds of questions are not ones that I have to deal with on a daily basis, but I like to imagine myself in those situations. And I also like to read other people or watch other people like grapple with those ideas. But the thing that I really respond to is usually like the depth with which people immerse themselves in those worlds. So like I love the jargon and I love the dialogue and I like the characterizations and like the little jobs people have and little tasks that they have to do. And I think I find myself responding to that over and over again, not even in just like crime fiction or espionage stuff, but like when I'm watching, oh uh, God, I don't, I'm trying to pick up like a normal show. Like when I watch The Curse, I'm responding to the specificity of uh, the jobs that Emma Stone and Nathan Fielder are doing in that show. Like the fact that they are these kind of like dippy, neo-lib housing uh, 
like builders who are trying to get rich off of the idea of building environmentally sound housing. Like it's not necessarily like the idea that they're like uh, scamming anybody. It's it's just the like the sort of immersion you get into this New Mexico world where these people are 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 sort of running this running this scam. And maybe they wouldn't even call it a scam, but you know, doing having this business. So there's something about that that I think I respond to no matter what it is. Um, whether it's the crown or whether it's, you know, true detective. Like I, I I like it. As far as like how I process my taste and then like depict it to the world or announce it to the world. I would like to think that I'm like pretty open minded. And I think that um I think I'm also like as I gotten older, I've started to try and be a little bit more like there is there is room between loved it and hated it. Um, and I and I think that when I was growing up, like when I was young, to get attention or to feel like I was contributing something significant, I think I would go one or the other. I would say this modest mouse record sucks, and here's why, or this modest mouse record is better than Pet Sounds, and here's why. And I started. I think I've become a lot more like measured uh, as I've gotten older. Which is bad because nobody likes listening to podcasts where somebody's like, it's pretty good. I liked it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It was okay. Yeah. I mean, I think I was worried that I would hate all the new stuff when I was older, which hasn't happened. But what has happened that I do caution myself is I know what comforts me, especially by going back and watching things I've already watched or also just sort of keeping myself in certain corners of the cultural world, I just sort of know I can have the same experience over and over again. And that is the enemy of new experiences, which many of those things were when I first experienced them. I actually think that there's probably some of that in like listening to a show like The Watch. I'm like, I'm just, it's comfortable. I think about this a lot. When I was in my 20s and I was like not doing a lot of five-year plans, Often what would happen when I would move, if I would change apartments, is I was a loser and I would just be like, rather than move all this crap, I'm just going to get rid of it. I'll either take a crate of CDs to the record store to sell. I would shed my quote-unquote collection of stuff. Books, boxes of books I would take back to my parents' house and leave in the in the basement. Or DVDs I would sell back just because like I didn't want to move it all in. When I moved in with my girlfriend, who then became my wife, like I didn't want to like be like, hey, thanks for having me move in with you. Here's like all of my raucous and deaf jocks 12 inches need <laughs> their own room. So like I've, you know, over the course of the early part of my life, like would accumulate and then get rid of stuff pretty, pretty easily. And that would also create a world in which I didn't have that many physical records all of a sudden, or I didn't have that many physical CDs all of a sudden, and I would be in the market for new stuff. Or I just, I think that we can't underestimate the idea of like, not needing to have a physical library of stuff. Like, I can just listen to Led Zeppelin whenever I want. I don't have to bring Led Zeppelin 4 with me on vacation. I don't have to have saved my my gatefold vinyl from when I was 22 and I found it at a thrift store or something like that. I can just fire it up as soon as we're done talking. And that is the same case for television. I do not have to buy a DVD box set of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. It's just right there at my fingertips. I can just hit play on the one... Maya Rudolph scene that I like, or I can watch it on YouTube, but the experience of culture at like an on-demand level across the board, I think has changed it. So it's like, you do have to ask yourself a question, like, would I rather listen to Chris and Andy than have a new experience? Would I rather listen to Robert Plant and Jimmy Page than check out like another new band that might not be as good as Led Zeppelin? 
I think I know which side I want to be on, but it's the same side that wants to be like exercising, drinking yes. less coffee. You know, it's like m- my impulses are push pulling against like my sort of grander artistic, like cultural um, views. And, and it's, it's like <laughs> when you were saying that, I was like, you know, my dream for a Pluto TV channel is is like it's just a the best scenes. Yes. It's just like it just <laughs> cuts from like 3 minutes of one movie to 3 minutes of another movie perfectly curated. And that's kind of yeah. like what I want to be like projected on my like eyeballs in the hologram, you know, as I'm dying. We were just talking about this on the the flight rewatchables where we were talking about like what an amazing YouTube movie flight is. You know, it's like it's a pretty dark and and sort of draining film if you watch it the entire thing. But if you just watch the plane crash and a couple of other scenes, you're like, this movie is like these three scenes are the best <laughs> in the world. And I was just, you know, like there are like that is kind of what the rewatchables for as, as much as it's like, oh, yeah, the movie that if you see that it's on cable, you'll always finish it. It's also like the movie that has like half a dozen scenes that you think about all the time. It's not necessarily the whole film is rewatchable or it still holds together perfectly. It's maybe stuff that's just stuck with you. And I completely agree with you. If there was a Pluto channel that was like, hey, here's 20 Friday Night Lights scenes that are awesome, I might hang out and watch it for two hours. If there was a channel that was every scene that's been nominated in rewatchables as the best scene in that movie playing on a random loop, this could be the like. This could be what I watch for the rest of a, my life. That's a, such a good idea. I know. Uh, if there's anyone from idea. Pluto TV who listens to this show, or really any of those knockoff streamers, I guess it's a licensing nightmare because you have to license like every every great movie ever to do it. But let's do it. Yeah, but, and and also proof of life and cruising. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't think cruising is what's going to make this uh, not work. Probably not. <laughs> um, uh. So. Um, like for you thinking about like the ringer as a whole, is there some sort of like limit to how many shows, how much stuff to cover? Like at what point does your brain sort of start to fracture beyond the point where you can like focus on this in a way that you feel good about it? Um, You mean, do I mean, do I think that like we as a company have like, what's the amount of shows or is it like just me personally how much can i consume yeah well it's like both it's like what's your personal limit and what's like the company's limit for like that's enough you know i mean the company's limit is like we're trying to find ways to bring people's passions closer to them so i mean if like you know there are people who love golf they can listen to fairway rolling and we try to make the best golf show that we can and if there are people who like soccer like we have five soccer shows you know, that that hopefully you can go to. It's not, we don't expect there to be, I think when we were at Grantland, I don't know if we even explicitly ever really talked about this, but there was this idea that there was a Grantland completist reader, mm. you know, that there was somebody who basically read all of Grantland every day and would listen to Bill and then started listening to, you know, Hollywood Prospectus and Zach Lowe and the other pods that we were doing. It's and me. You, you, you found could, him. <laughs> <laughs> but I think at a certain point, even the completists have to wave a white flag. Yeah. You know, like there is there is a point where it's like, there's just too much stuff. I can't read a 5,000 word feature, 10 blog posts and listen to three podcasts and then do it all again the next day. Yeah. So 
that is like the the line you walk in digital publishing, whether it's for editorial stuff or for podcasting, is like you have to accept the fact that like there is not going to be a single person out there who listens to it all, you know, and who can read it all and who can watch it all. But you can imbue everything you do with a certain quality, both like like a personality characteristic quality, but also like quality of production that hopefully like anybody who does like this kind of thing will find some value in it. For me personally, when it comes to like how much stuff can I be into, I'll be completely honest, I grapple with this all the time. Like sometimes I've like kind of come across something and I'm, I, I remember this happened with F1 when everybody was getting into drives to survive. Yeah. I was like, I don't, I can't do it. Yeah. I can't get into something else, care about this, need to wake up like on Saturday mornings to watch it. I can't do it. I can't listen to more podcasts. Like I, I've already like gotten into golf and in like gotten back into hardcore music. Like I can't now add Formula One racing to this. And I, I felt like I hit like the finite walls of like my consciousness yeah. when when people were like dude you gotta get into drive survive i was like i can't do it yeah. i cannot do it yeah i mean this is sort of like a weird existential question but like is it hard to have like a self away from all of this content and sports and everything like is being sort of bombarded with so many other people's lives and their projects and passions like what's it like emotionally for you that part's easy. Like working with people is is the best part about this job. Like getting to see my friends and work with them is the best part of my job. The hard part is knowing where like work ends and you begin. Mm. And on one hand, like I think that I'm incredibly lucky because if I'm being completely honest with myself, I think that I would do a lot of what I'm doing if I was writing copy somewhere or if I was just blogging about basketball. Like I would hopefully then still like come home at night and watch a TV show or something like that. I may not podcast about it. I may not have to watch it twice. I may not have to figure out how True Detective Night Country connects to True Detective Season 1. But I think that I would pretty be a pretty voracious consumer of that stuff no matter what I did. But I do kind of have like frequently have like a 10 p.m. night where I'm like, am I working or am I hanging out? Like, I can't tell the difference, you know, like, and I think that that is a pretty common experience for people, especially in the last like four years since like the pandemic, where a lot of people started working these kinds of jobs from home is it's like, well, yeah, you can take the three hours in the middle of the day to take a walk and do whatever. But then that means sometimes that you're just going to be working from like seven to 10, even though it doesn't feel like work, you are working, you know? Uh, and one thing that has changed a lot about me over the years is like, I used to be a real big, like, I would avoid deadlines. I would avoid like any kind of looming responsibilities when I was a kid, yeah. like anything I could do to squirrel out of it. And now that stuff like really haunts me and gives me anxiety. So if I know that I'm going to have to talk about something, I don't feel like comfortable just like shooting the shit and watching a show that I don't have like a professional responsibility to watch. Like I'd rather just watch the shows that I know Andy and I are going to talk about, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a, I've talked to other people on the show, you know, it's like a, it's a great privilege to get to do like what you love or get to work around what you love, but you'll never have a 
independent experience of loving it outside of your job again until you retire. It's you're gonna be, you got like 20 more years before you're going to be able to just like watch a watch a movie if you're, you're on this course. And I think that also there's there's a lot to be said for the fact that like when Grantland started in, you know, when I moved to L.A. in 2012, I think is when like media fully embraced being on Twitter. And this idea that, like, not only do I have to be on this thing in case, like, something huge happens, but I also have to be on in case anybody makes an interesting observation or joke about anything I care about. And there was definitely, like, a period of time there uh, where I feel like we, we, you know, me and, like, my cohort were all, like, kind of addicted to to experiencing our lives, our professional lives through, through like, social media. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I don't necessarily, I don't really post, uh, I never really did, but I was a voracious reader of it. But like, I definitely feel like I'm trying to cut that out because it's like the one part of it I can control is like, nobody makes you read Twitter all day. You know, nobody makes you have to like be on Reddit or anything like that. Like you can do this job and not do that anymore. And it, I think that that's the one part that sometimes feels like invasive to like my personhood, if you, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Since you've like pulled back on that, like, do you feel like your opinions are different now that you have like less of a chorus in your head? Yeah, I mean, I think the the sort of the plus side of the social media dialogue about stuff is that like you can really hear some interesting ideas and thoughts about a TV show, a movie, a game, whatever it is. The danger is like groupthink, and I don't mean groupthink, and it's like, oh, you're afraid to tell the truth about. <laughs> you know, what LeBron's really doing out there. You turn into a real sheeple, Chris. Yeah, exactly. It's. I think it's just that you will wind up, like, synthesizing what people say on such a, such a level that, like, you're essentially, like, stitching together, like, the conventional wisdom with maybe a little bit of your own personal taste. Um, I, I'm, I'm guilty of that. Like, I'm guilty of, like, seeing online, like, how people think about, like, Fargo this season and then my take on it being, like, consciously or unconsciously a reaction to that and that's like for the average person they're like what why like why i don't care what other people on twitter think of fargo and how that makes you mad you know like why don't you just say you don't like fargo and say why you know or whatever it is so it's it's definitely been something where i think you're always wrestling with checking your taste against like a larger group versus like needlessly going against that group yeah i think the first experience i had with that was when um, Watch the Throne came out and I read like a bunch of takes that were like these bloated millionaires with nothing to say. And it just bothers me because every time I like hear a song for Watch the Throne, I think about that reaction, which was not at all my reaction. Like things imprint on you, like when you experience them and the imprinting that happened for like five to 10 years was Twitter. Like it's yes. just, it's just, it got its messy sauce on all of my shirts. Yes. And also like, I think you can respond to the response to the things that you're making. So like you can feel, oh, it seems like people like when I do this, or it seems like people hate when I do that. I'll try and keep that in mind. But Twitter was like that first really like cracked mirror where you're looking into it and you're like, you know, did, did people like this piece? It only got so many likes. It only got so many retweets. Something else came out right after my piece went up and 
kind of blew my piece out of the water. And it was like, that was not like a cool time. You know, that, that was not like a great way to be a writer or to be on uh, an editor at, the, at that period of time when that was like really all consuming. I think like the opposite of that feeling or something that I find heartwarming on some level is like, you guys did this for like a long time and you kind of like called out like who your like major figures were like, Michael Mann. Yeah. And and then it was like, holy shit, he's on a podcast. Like Michael Mann came on the show. You yeah. know, like there's like some pretty like crazy like like wish fulfillment um for a for a long-term listener. When you actually get like one of these people who you've probably spent a hundred hours talking about Michael Mann's work in podcasts, what's it like having them in the room? And like, what do you try and get from like the real people behind the stuff as opposed to just talking about the stuff? I I think that it's fair to say that when you become like obsessive about someone like I am about Michael Mann or even like about Quentin Tarantino or something like that, that you, it's not like you know the person, but I think you can almost imagine what the experience is going to be like to talk to them. And in, I'm lucky enough, like if I just like met Michael Mann and somebody was like, Chris, I really want you to meet Michael Mann. Michael, Chris is a huge fan of your work. And we were like outside of a screening room. I would crap myself. Like I would just not be able to think of a single thing to say. I I would, I would try to say something cool that he would probably be like, what are you talking about? And then they would be like, Michael has to go. And I would be like, I want to go drive into a brick wall. Yeah. In the context of like having a podcast with him, like I don't have the luxury of screwing up in some ways. So you know, Michael Mann knew that he was coming on the rewatchables. I think he quickly deduced that Bill and I are insane and think more about heat than he does. Uh, and then he was like, no, I'm more insane. Like, I know Neil Macaulay's like Maoist like <laughs> education that he got at California State Prison. And we were like, I can't believe this is happening. Um, but he was exactly like kind of what I thought he was going to be. And Quentin was sort of the same if only different because Quentin, I, I just had no idea how like amazingly warm and generous he would be. Um, and so to get to talk about Dunkirk, which I think was like actually the coolest thing was we weren't talking about Quentin movies. We were talking about movies that he had picked for us to do on rewatchables. It was really awesome because I felt like we got to share our love for movies and not get into the like, am I sufficiently kissing your ass about how much Pulp Fiction means to me? Um, I often have pinch myself moments but it's always nice if it's like there's work to be done and I can only screw this up so much before it gets in the way of that work getting done. You have like a lot of showrunners on the watch who you've talked about their shows. I can't, I, I was trying to think of an example about this, but like I've, if you do this for long enough, you're eventually going to like not like someone's show yeah. and then have them on the show. Like, how do you think about like it being sort of like, if this show we very like, you never hear us like um like shitting on someone on the show because we're trying to get all these people on the show. <laughs> it's all, it's basically all positive, and you're not all positive, but you do have the people behind the stuff. I think that um, Andy and I try not to really talk about things that we don't like too much. I mean yep. that that we, we have definitely slipped a little bit in that regard when it comes to some Star Wars and Marvel stuff that we feel compelled to check out because we're still boy men who can't get over like the force, whether and whether it's not, it's real. But I think that, you know, we, we've definitely gotten a little bit catty about that. But when it comes to just like your average, like 
hey, this is this is on Apple or this is on HBO. And if it, we don't really respond to it, we may do an initial kind of pass by the episode and just be like, not really for me or yeah. here's what I didn't like about it. But in our early days, I think we would have much more fun at the expense of shows. Mm. Uh, you know, we would make fun of like a character or a show for weeks and weeks on end. I mean, we didn't really know what we were doing. Now, it's not so much that I worry about like bumping into somebody at the groove as much as it's like, I think I've come to appreciate that people who make any any anything that winds up on our screens was like the efforts of like the incredible amount of work that goes into just making anything. So I try not to be an asshole if I can help it about stuff. Um, and it winds up being like, yeah, sometimes like people that we're, we really like have made stuff that we don't like as much as other stuff that they've made. Um, it doesn't mean we think that they're idiots and it doesn't mean that other people might not like those shows. It just so happens that like for the two of us for that moment, it didn't work and we weren't really talking about it. It does get kind of weird though. I mean, like you definitely will say something kind of casually on a podcast and then get a message about it being like right after the pod has come out and it's like, Hey, by the way, heard what you said and you were wrong about X, Y, or Z. And you're like, God, I really do have to kind of like think about who's listening sometimes. You've been doing this for like a good portion of your adult life. Yeah, like a and, yeah, <laughs> like half. Yeah, sure. And you kind of described who you were like before all this stuff as like kind of like a like not aimless, but like a person who wasn't exactly sh- like it didn't sound like you had like a giant career plan to have your shit together. Like what? Like what? What made you get your shit together? And like what? What would you tell like? a 22 year old who didn't have their shit together, but like, like the same kind of shit you do. Um, I will get, made me get my shit together was that I moved across the country and I knew that like that this job at Grantland was like literally like my best opportunity of my life. Uh, like, I can't really say that that's going to happen for every, I mean, I was honestly in my thirties when this happened. So like, they, I don't know what to say to a 22 year old, like, just wait till I, you're 30 and get a great opportunity. Well, I mean, I think honestly, waiting a few years and deciding what your great opportunity might look like is important. You know, like you're not necessarily going to be a fully formed person with like fully formed taste at 22. I wasn't, you know. Me neither. Uh, like and it helps maybe to like sometimes work some jobs outside of the media and like just kind of have like a life life that you then bring life experience into a writing job that helps a lot. Like I think you know, you see a lot of people who are like, just basically like thrust into this industry without any other experiences. And it's kind of like, I, I can tell you're like, you're like mimicking what you think you should be saying about something. But have you ever actually like grappled with some of the stuff you're talking about, which is not like a knock on anyone in particular. Like, I think that it, it could easily happen to me if I had like, had my like, had my st- my shit more wired tight, I could have like, maybe gotten a job earlier in my life and like just had to like jump right into working at Blender or something like that. I don't know. Um, But for me, it was really like clear that I had always felt like I didn't quite fit in at other publications or I couldn't quite get my stuff together enough to like fit in at other publications. And this was something that was only going to happen once in my life. And it's still in some ways it still is like Grantland is like a miracle that happened that like a big company let Bill fund like funded a company for bill and then the bill in turn turned around to a bunch of people and was like kind of make this what you want even though i'll give you some guidance and that was a pretty pure expression of like how i thought about sports and how i thought about culture was like the work i did on grantland you know nobody was like you can't do that that's too weird or you know i mean there was it was definitely a hard job but 
I had no one to blame at Grantland if something didn't come out the way I wanted because it was always, you know, it was really like, let it rip, see what you can do with this. And it might be a blog post about a movie trailer or it might be a long column about a Premier League weekend, but it was like up to me to make it happen. And I don't really know how many places like that will ever be around. I, I don't know if there will ever be another thing like that that also pays you enough money to move to Los Angeles. You know, that was that was kind of the miracle of it. Chris, um, thank you so much for this interview. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, man. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to the Long Form Podcast. Thanks very much to my guest, Chris Ryan. Uh, thanks to our editor on this episode, Jackie Sajiko. Thanks to Megan Valley for doing the show notes. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to everyone over at Vox Media who help us make the show. And thank you for listening to the show. We will be back with a brand new episode next week. <laughs>